0: Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Uh, We've got a very exciting afternoon and fantastic momentum from this morning. Really happy to introduce Dr. Susan Buckbinder, who's a professor of medicine and epidemiology at UCSF and is at the San Francisco Department of Public Health. She's going to give us a really nice overview of the current snapshot of epidemiology, HIV transmission, and the place that PrEP uh, can have the most impact Uh, in the populations that are most at risk. So Susan, it's great to have you here. Floor is yours.
1: Okay. Uh, Give me just a moment to share the screen and let's see if this comes up. Is it, no, I don't think it's coming up as my.
0: Yeah, the slides are up. Just go to slideshow and you got
1: it. Okay. I guess I, hold on just a second. I need to stop sharing because I need to do it the other way. Okay. Okay. Now, can you see?
0: There it goes, perfect, thanks.
1: Okay, so we're um, gonna be talking about the impact of PrEP on ending the HIV epidemic. Um, I have no disclosures, and these are the learning objectives that you'll be able to list the populations most in need of PrEP, describe the components of PrEP needed to have impact, and give examples of programs to improve PrEP coverage. So um, you're probably aware of the National Ending the HIV Epidemic Initiative, the goals of which are to get to 75% reduction in new HIV infections in five years, and at least a 90% reduction in 10 years. Um, There are four pillars, diagnosing people, treating people, preventing new infections, and responding quickly to outbreaks. We're going to focus on the prevention component and specifically on the PrEP component. And on the right, I just showed you a map of the 48- Uh, jurisdictions and seven states where um, more than half of the new infections are occurring. So this is the outline. We're going to talk about who needs PrEP, what does it take to have PrEP impact, what evidence do we have of PrEP impact, what do models tell us will be needed, and then I'll give you an example of putting PrEP into action. So let's start with who needs PrEP, and we'll start with an audience response question. How much did new HIV infections decline in the U.S. from 2015 to 2019? So if you can answer this poll. Um, One is there's no decline, 8% decline, 16% decline, 24% decline, or 32% decline. And that's uh, from 2015 to 2019. Go ahead and vote. And if you don't know, just take a wild guess. Okay. Well, we have uh, 58% got the answer right. It's only 8%. So to get to 75%, we clearly have our work cut out for us. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Um, This is uh, just from 2017 to 2019 and you can see this very slow decline and we're supposed to get all the way down here to by 2025 less than 10,000 new infections a year. So who's becoming newly infected? Well, about two thirds are men who have sex with men a little less than a quarter are heterosexual women and men with about a two to one ratio of women to men. And then about 10% are people who inject drugs. So we need PrEP for all three of those populations. Now we do have these substantial racial and ethnic disparities. So in the purple bars is the proportion of new infections um, within a different racial or ethnic group. And in the green bars is the size of the population. And what you can see is that Black African Americans make up 41% of new diagnoses, but only 12% of the population. And Latinx individuals make up 29% of new diagnoses, but only 17% of the population. So we clearly have these substantial racial and ethnic disparities thought it would be useful to look at the trends over time. The asterisks show a significant either decline or increase. And so in this case, you can see that heterosexuals have declined, but it's a very gradual, uh, fairly minimal decline, no decline in men who have sex with men, or people who inject drugs over this 10 year period. What about by age, you can see we've had a substantial decline in the 13 to 24 year age range and a more modest, but still statistically significant decline in the 45 to 54 year old age category. But if you look at the 25 to 34 year age category, we've actually had a statistically significant increase in new diagnoses. And if we look at race ethnicity by men on the top and women on the bottom, the only male group that's gone down in terms of uh, numbers of uh, the rates of HIV infection are white men. So we clearly need, we have these disparities with Black African-American and Latinx men. And the only group that's gone down for women are Black African-Americans, but we still have this substantial racial and ethnic disparity for Black African-American women. So we need to get PrEP out to all of those individuals. And then if we look at the 37,000 new infections in 2018, almost 30,000 of them were in cities of greater than or equal to 500,000 people. So this is uh, predominantly an urban uh, epidemic, but we have some uh, peri-urban and rural areas, particularly in the Midwest and the South. So what does it take to have PrEP impact? Well, on an individual level, people need to be aware of PrEP in the first place. Then they need to take it up and they need to continue to take it during periods of risk. At a population level, we need coverage to cover the demand and we need providers to supply the the PrEP. So we're gonna talk about each of these. These are data from the National HIV Behavioral Surveillance Surveys that take place every year, but in a different population every three years. So we've got in green, the heterosexuals in 2016, in blue, the men who have sex with men in 2017, and in yellow, the people who inject drugs in 2018. And what you can see is that in terms of awareness of PrEP, we're doing very well with men who have sex with men less well with uh, people who inject drugs and really less than 10% of heterosexuals in 2016 were even aware of PrEP. In terms of discussing PrEP with a provider, half of men who have sex with men reported that they had discussed PrEP with the provider, but it was um, less than 5% of people who inject drugs and only 1% of heterosexuals. And in terms of actually taking PrEP, it's about 35% uh, for men who have sex with men, but less than 1% for the other two groups. Now, the men who have sex with men, it looks like we're doing pretty well, but, um, and we we did do better. If you compare the 2014 NHBS survey to the 2017 NHBS survey, we went from PrEP awareness going from 60% to 90%, and PrEP uptake increasing from 6% to 35%. So good improvements. But we have these racial and ethnic disparities. So if you look at PrEP use, 42% of white men had reported that they used PrEP, whereas only 30% of Latinx men and only 26% of black African-American men reported that they had used PrEP. What about PrEP persistence? Well, unlike antiretroviral treatment for people living with HIV, PrEP only needs to be used during seasons of risk. But what we know is that people stop PrEP for a variety of reasons, insurance, cost, um, side effects, not wanting to take a daily pill, stigma, a variety of different uh, reasons, not all of which are that they're no longer at risk for HIV. And I'm going to show you some data on people stopping PrEP and the high rates of infection in those groups. Um, we have refill of pharmacy data that suggests that persistence is improving over time, however, and these are these are pharmacy-based data, and you can see that in 2012 here, it was only about 10% who persisted at six months, and if you go 2013, 14, 15, 16, 17, we're now up to about two-thirds that persisted at um, six months. So we are doing better year after year, but we still have some room to move, and in particular, we have room to move because we've got disparities in prep persistence. So On the left are national data, the blue bars are the proportion who started PrEP, so we started 100%, then the proportion who stayed on PrEP in orange at one year and in gray at two years. And what you can see is that the drop-off is particularly precipitous for the youngest age groups, and it gets better as you get to older age groups. And if you look at uh, men on the left versus women on the right, we have a more precipitous drop-off in women. And here are some data that um, Hyman Scott showed you earlier about the San Francisco primary care clinics, and you can see that we have more substantial and rapid drop-off for Black African Americans than we do for and Latinx groups than we do for the other racial and ethnic groups. And this is despite a median of only eight months of uh, PrEP overall. So we, again, have the possibility that if we don't deal with PrEP persistence, that will exacerbate these racial and ethnic disparities in new infections. So here are some data from two California studies. One is from Kaiser Northern California. They found that of those prescribed PrEP, 98% started PrEP. 52% 52% discontinued PrEP at least once, especially in the first two years, but 60% of those who discontinued subsequently restarted. So we do have some people going on and off PrEP. And the question is, how well do they do? Well, the HIV incidence in people who referred for PrEP but never started was a little over one per 100 person years. Um, It was almost 1.3 per 100-person years if they started PrEP but discontinued it. So it's that group that discontinues that we need to really pay attention to because they may be discontinuing for reasons that are other than that they're really no longer at risk. And we have um, no infections among those people who are persistently on PrEP. And then these are data from Los Angeles, from the LGBT Center, um, with HIV incidence of 2.1 per 100-person years for people who discontinued PrEP, so high rates of infection, whereas it was only 0.1% for people who went on and stayed on PrEP. So how many people, what do we need in terms of coverage? Um, How many people actually need PrEP? It's been estimated to be about 1.2 million, over 800,000 men who have sex with men, over 250,000 heterosexuals, and over 70. 2,000 people who inject drugs might benefit from PrEP. And these are 2015 estimates. It may be even higher now. Four states accounted for 40% of the national total, California, Florida, New York, and Texas. But the goal is to get to at least 50% coverage by 2025. So how are we doing? Well, as of in 2018, we were only at 18.1%. You can see we're doing somewhat better in men than in women, but still far, far far fewer than the 50%. If you look at um, by by age, the youngest age group and the oldest age group have the lowest rates. And then the only group that's really approaching the 50% are white individuals, whereas um, Latinx and Black African Americans have much lower rates of PrEP coverage. So again, we really need to address these disparities. Um, These are the data as of 2020, Um, so you can see we went from 18% to 23%, but there was a kind of a little bit of leveling off, and that may be because of COVID in part, but we've got to get all the way up here, so we've got to really bend this curve if we're going to get to 50% by 2025. This is PrEP coverage by state, and what you can see is the lighter colors actually show higher uh, PrEP coverage, so we have particularly better PrEP coverage in the Northeast some parts of the Midwest and South, and then some parts of the West. Um, One of the interesting um, ways of looking at this is to look at the PrEP to need ratio. So not just looking at what proportion of people are are on PrEP per 100,000 population, but how many people are on PrEP for every person who actually became infected in that um, population. And so nationally, it's about five PrEP starts, for every uh, one person infected. We, we undoubtedly need to get that number higher. If you look at states without PrEP-DAP, and there were 13 states with uh, PrEP-DAP, like an ADAP program and the Washington DC, um, the ones with PrEP-DAP had a 6.4 PrEP-to-need ratio. Those without PrEP-DAP only had 3.9 uh, PrEP-to-need ratio. States without Medicaid expansion also were substantially lower, as were states in the south of the United States where more than half of the new infections are occurring. And 1.6 um, is the PrEP to need ratio for women. So we really need to ramp up our coverage for women. What about the provider side of things? Well, these, this is a map from 2014 to 2019, and you can see that there has been improvement in the proportion of um, providers who are actually providing PrEP. These data come from a prescribing database of over 90% of retail pharmacies and 60 to 86% of mail order prescriptions. Um, From 2014 to 2019, the proportion of general practitioners or family practitioners prescribing PrEP went from only 1.8% to 13.6%. The proportion of ID docs prescribing PrEP went from 14.2% to 34.2%. But 50% of the PrEP patients received prescriptions from only 2.2% of the PrEP providers. So we've got some mega providers, but then we have uh, the other providers are probably prescribing to a relatively small proportion of people. And then the ratio of PrEP providers to 100 persons with PrEP indications is lowest in the South. And as I mentioned, that's where most of the infections are occurring in the United States. So what evidence do we have of PrEP impact at a population level? Well, we've got some good data from the United States. These are data from Don Smith at the CDC in which they looked at by state and they looked at the amount of PrEP that was ramped up and they divided the states into quintiles. So 10 states per per batch. Um, this is the group, the highest quintile that had the, the largest PrEP scale up compared to the lowest PrEP scale up. And this is Washington, DC. And what you can see is that for the ones that have the largest PrEP scale up, they had the largest annual estimated, uh, estimated annual percentage change in diagnosis rate. So they had the biggest decline in new diagnoses, um, Washington, D.C., but then the 10 states that were in the highest quintile, and you can see this relationship where the group with the lowest um, rate of PrEP uptake uh, was actually, uh, had the, had an actual increase in the, in the number of new infections. Um, So that gives us some good indication that at a population level, we can actually drive down new infections. And what they did is they actually then also adjusted for the, for um, viral suppression rates by state and found that for um, every give, given year, um, the percentage change in diagnosis rate declined 1.3% for every increase in 1% PrEP coverage. So um, it does drive down rates at a national level at a state. Uh, a city level, these are some data from Seattle, and you can see here in this blue dotted line, PrEP uptake um, going up to almost 40%, and a, a decline in the number of new diagnoses over that period of time. The decline started before PrEP, so it's likely that it's not just PrEP, but PrEP may be contributing to it. There are data from New South Wales, um, in which they rolled out PrEP in a demonstration project and saw a 25% decline in new diagnoses in men who have sex with men in the 12 months after they rolled out PrEP. And then what they did is they stopped the PrEP demonstration project and just tried to get PrEP to as many people as they could. PrEP was 92% effective over three years of follow-up among 10,000 men who have sex with men taking PrEP. And what they saw was all of the seroconversions among men who have sex with men were in people who had stopped taking PrEP. Among the men who have sex with men who persistently took PrEP, there were no seroconversions out of 10,000 men who have sex with men. We have data from England. Um, Overall, rates of new diagnoses fell by 17%, and in London by 25%, and in large sexual health clinics where they scaled up PrEP, they saw a 32% decline in in, um, in new diagnoses. So again, it's likely that Uh, Treatment is also driving some of this decline in new diagnoses, but PrEP is clearly playing a role. And These are data from Scotland um, in which they ramped up PrEP use in sexual health clinics from 2017 to 2019, and they saw a a reduction in new HIV infections, even among the people not prescribed PrEP, so it may be that you're preventing onward transmission through sexual networks, an 83 percent decline in people reporting high-risk behavior. Um, who were prescribed PrEP at least once. So we have good evidence that PrEP uh, has impact, but what do models tell us will be needed? And there's a saying that um, all models are wrong, but some are useful. So I went through 20 different models and pulled out culled out a couple of lessons from three of them that I'm gonna show you here. The first is um, a model by Sam Janess. And if you look at coverage by adherence and you look at the proportion of infections averted, if you had 40% coverage and about 40% adherence, you're at about a 25% reduction in new infections over a 10 year period. Um, As the coverage to get to the highest level of the proportion of infections averted, you need to improve both coverage and adherence. For a number needed to treat, however, all you need to do is increase adherence. You can increase coverage, but you're not really um, as you go horizontally, you're not really changing the number needed to treat. The way you change the number needed to treat um, is by increasing your adherence. And that's the number needed to treat to prevent one infection. So the numbers are actually quite good. Um, 40% and 40% would get you at 30 um, people needed to treat in order to prevent one infection. Here's another model. Um, This has now got a five year time scale. And this one suggested that if you had 40% coverage and 40% adherence, you'd be a little less than 10% um, reduction in HIV infection rates over five years. Remember, we're supposed to get to 75%. So to get even closer to that, you'd need 80% coverage and 80% adherence to get to uh, a little over 40% protection. So what that's suggesting is that in order to get to to our numbers for the ending the epidemic, we need to scale up testing treatment and uh, prevention and PrEP, but that PrEP can get us a substantial proportion of the way there if we can really improve coverage and adherence. So the last model I wanted to tell you about is one that you get to play with yourselves. It's um, here's the URL and if you, look, it's got 32 U.S. cities in here and they've got, you can basically adjust how much HIV testing is happening, how much viral suppression you have in people living with HIV and how much pre-exposure prophylaxis you have. And then you can either use these pre-run interventions or custom interventions and take a look at what that does to the number of new infections. And so I looked in San Francisco and said, what if we were just to change PrEP uptake? And if you got up to 75% Uh, PrEP uptake, you could get to an 85% reduction in new infections over a 10-year time frame. So um, again, that's to me good news. It says that PrEP can really get us a substantial proportion of the way, but not all the way to where we need to be to end the epidemic. So I wanted to close by just telling you a little bit about some um, examples of things that we've done in San Francisco to try to scale up PrEP as part of our San Francisco getting to zero Uh, consortium, which is built on this framework of collective impact. We've got a number of different committees, one of which is a prep committee. And what they decided to do when we first launched in 2013 was we needed to increase the supply of prep. So we wanted to focus on providers. We needed to increase the demand for prep. So we focused on prep users and then we wanted to measure prep impact. So here's some of the kinds of things that we did. We created a common protocol and it's posted online. If you go to gettingtozerosf.org, you can find our common PrEP protocol. And then we did some academic detailing where we went, we had a nurse practitioner go out to different providers, clinics and offices and help them to figure out how they could integrate PrEP into their current workflow. Um, Some of the kinds of questions that came up before the break. Then um, we had new PrEP clinics that were started we, developed, we placed PrEP navigators at some of the major providers, and we created PrEP navigation boot, boot camps that um, were uh, designed to help people at clinics that didn't have PrEP navigators figure out how to navigate people to PrEP benefits. And then we created a youth fund for medications and transportation for youth who didn't want to use their parents' insurance. In terms of increasing demand, we had some PrEP social media campaigns. We had an online PrEP navigator to answer questions. We sent PrEP ambassadors out to uh, health fairs to talk about their experiences with PrEP. We had a not very successful, unfortunately, data to PrEP program where we went and contacted people who had been diagnosed with STIs and offered PrEP to them. And then one of our members started PleasePrepMe.org, which was a way to link people to PrEP providers. And then we had a number of different ways that we went about trying to measure PrEP impact, triangulating data, collating data, and um, doing online surveys. So this is just shows you a smattering of what was done. We um, The city funded four community-based organizations to do outreach for, uh, for again, uh, knowledge about PrEP uptake of PrEP and PrEP persistence, one for the Black African-American community, one for youth, one for the transgender community, and one for the Latinx community. We created a collaborative practice agreement with uh, a community-based pharmacy called Mission Wellness, so that the pharmacists themselves could actually prescribe PrEP without people needing to see a a clinician. We had this online PrEP uh, navigator um, and we had a couple of uh, media cam- um, social network campaigns um, and what this one the prep supports one was specifically designed for black African Americans. The Viva prep one was for the Latinx community and it actually won a national award. We started a prep demonstration project for transgender individuals. And we've created a number of different apps to help people to assess their risk for prep. Um, Assess their risk for infection and see how much PrEP can help them reduce that risk. We have a way of triaging people who are uh, on PrEP so that if they run into problems, they have somebody they can contact um, and we check in with them regularly through an automated um, SMS texting uh, two way uh, system. We have a 211 PrEP. Um, App that is being developed to help people figure out when their next dose is due. And we have an online pharmacy with a collaborative practice agreement so that people again can get their PrEP delivered to themselves at home. This is how we're doing at the municipal STD clinic. You can see that about, by 2020, about 70% of the men who have sex with men attending the STD clinic are on PrEP. It's only 63%, however, for black African-Americans. So again, we still have these disparities that we're trying very hard to address. But this is what happened to our uh, infection rates from 2012 when we started ramping up PrEP down to 2019, we've had a 65% drop in new infections. And so in conclusion, PrEP scale-up is needed particularly for Black, African-American, Latinx men who have sex with men, 25 to 34 year olds and heterosexuals and people who inject drugs. We're already seeing population level impacts from PrEP, but disparities could worsen unless rollout is equitable. And comprehensive scale-up at a city level with a particular focus on addressing disparities can result in substantial reductions of new infections. And with that, I'll stop and be happy to uh, answer questions during that question and answer session. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Susan, that was phenomenal. Um, Just a great, not only review and uh, practical uh, rationale for why we should be doing this, but also sets up our next speaker very well, who is a colleague of yours at.